we look all throughout Texas. I think that I understand the market. I understand how the tax implications work, how friendly it is from a business state. Um, and then also at the same time, kind of, you know, employment and all those types of things and how that works. Because, you know, we're going to have instances where guys, you know, may or may not stay with us for the duration of the time we hold the business. And so we got to understand what that all looks like from an employment perspective, too. So I like to keep my life simple and not know too many things. And so I don't want to learn franchise tax about Wisconsin, and I don't want to learn employment taxes about Oregon. So welcome to the Business Ownership Podcast, brought to you by Awareness Strategies, helping you navigate the waters between entrepreneurship and ownership. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I'm here with my most amazing guest, Malcolm. Malcolm, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, Michelle, thanks for having me. This is an honor. Um, so give us a highlight of who you are and what you do for business. I uh, born and raised Austin, Texas, first generation American from Southern Africa area. Family immigrated um, late 90s or early 90s, I should say, late 80s. Um, was born here in Austin and love Texas businesses. So we buy blue collar industrial type businesses in Texas and run them as the next baton holder for the next 20, 30 years. I'm not sure. We don't have an exit plan, but we love Texas businesses. I understand them. And I think that uh, we have a long track record of opportunity to continue to run down. I love it. So we will totally get into Austin. It's nuances and the fun parts of it. Couldn't agree more. And how did you get into acquiring businesses as your thing? Yeah, I uh, found out about it originally in 2016. I went back to grad school to basically transition life out of college collegiate athletics. Uh, and my parents were both entrepreneurial uh, people at heart. And so my dad uh, ran import export businesses. My mom's in data management and data programming. And I always thought I would just run a different path. And then time and time again, I kept running up against conversations of people that own businesses. And I was like, wait a second. I like your lifestyle. How do I go from here to there? I don't like traveling 30 <laughs> weeks out of the year. Um, I was talking to the U.S. national team for tennis, and I, I knew that I was going to travel even more, and I, I needed to make a change. So 2016 was the first kind of opening door of that um, and you know, ultimately transitioned life after that. Nice. I love it. So what is it about Austin businesses in particular that has your heart? Yeah, so we search all throughout Texas. We try to stay away from El Paso, although um, it is part of Texas. It is a different time zone, so I often uh, tell that it's a far way. Um, but it, you know, nevertheless, um, we look all throughout Texas. I think that I understand the market. I understand how the tax implications work, how friendly it is from a business state, um, and then also at the same time, kind of you know, employment and all those types of things and how that works. Because you know, we're gonna have instances where guys. You know, may or may not stay with us for the duration of the time we hold the business. And so we got to understand what that all looks like from an employment perspective, too. So I like to keep my life simple and not know too many things. And so I don't want to learn franchise tax about Wisconsin and I don't want to learn employment taxes about Oregon. So uh, we keep it real simple. And candidly, there's enough here. Uh, I think it's the 10th largest economy in the world at this point. Um, there's enough business going around that um, we'll be busy for a long time. God knows you have the population and you have the entrepreneurial spirit and, and, and there's a whole lot of things going on for you. Yeah. The, um, there was one thing that you mentioned that <laughs> stuck me. In. I, uh, you got to know that I'm the kind of person I have these questions in my mind, but then I want to hear the story because I'm going, <laughs> Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> I totally want to hear what's going on here. So with Texas, the laws, um, they are very entrepreneurial friendly. They are very, um, they, it's like they understand business and want to grow the economy. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that. But for those who aren't familiar with the Texas laws and things, what are some of the aspects of it that make it easier for 
entrepreneurs to invest there? I mean, the tax aspect is a huge deal. Um, just candidly, the low tax brackets that are allowed to be able to, you know, from a self, from an employment side, you can attract good quality talent to be able to come here. For the most part, you know, there's been changes over time, but for the most part, people are able to live here relatively inexpensively. And so you can attract good talent. I was talking to somebody the other day being in Austin, and I think that, you know, it wasn't intentional when we first thought of this, but it's fairly strategic at this point. You've got University of Texas, which is 50,000 students. I might know these numbers might be slightly off. You got another 60,000 students about an hour and a half away at Texas A&M. You got another 20,000 students in Baylor about an hour and a half away. You've got Texas State, which is another booming town now in, in San Marcos. Um, that whole corridor between San Antonio and Austin is just becoming bigger and bigger. So you've got a huge sloth of 40 or 50,000 students there. And then you got U UTSA, which is down in uh, San Antonio, which is also on the rise. So all that to be said, um, within an hour and a half in three different directions, you have a ton of talent and you have a lot of um, creative ability to retain people from the way I look at it. And so when, you, when you're working in a state that really pushes entrepreneurship and you've got the talent to kind of back that, I think that's when you really cool and unique un, uh, unlocks really happen. Nice. Love it. So what area of business do you specialize in or do you? Yeah. So we're blue collar industrial type businesses. So think manufacturing, think government contracted services and installation, bridge making, underwire, underwire um, installation, you name it. We're looking at a logistics company pretty closely right now. Um, and so staying anything that's kind of blue collar in nature, people get their hands dirty to make the world go around. I love it. I think that that's how our world works. And, and those are the people I tend to enjoy talking to more than anything else. Nice. I love it. And a lot of people don't think of those businesses as one, purchasable. Two, because it's not necessarily upfront and in their eyes, they don't see them. <laughs> so they yeah. just don't know that they're there. So yeah. give us an example of kind of one of the more interesting ones that you have. Like underwater to me is fascinating, but anywhere you want to take it. Yeah. So one of our niche businesses that we do, we manufacture stainless steel USDA devices that sort the sizes of seafood and we ship them to 39 countries in the world. So imagine, you know, you want to go get a piece of shrimp, you want a jumbo shrimp from Outback, or you want a small shrimp from a Thai restaurant, probably gone through one of our machines to size that size. So they actually have the right product to serve the customer. You go buy a bag of frozen shrimp at the grocery store, it's gone through a sizing mechanism to know how many shrimp should be in that sized bag. And so those are niche little businesses that we love, um, that we can play in and we can add value to. And candidly, um, we can we can bring some significant um, expertise to how do we scale those businesses. I'm not a welder at heart, truth be told. I don't know what the thing, <laughs> a thing about scaler. welding, but but I know yeah exactly. But I but I know how to scale businesses. I recognize that a lot of these businesses have one maybe two softwares that they utilize, and we can go implement a plan to help scale these businesses up to go after the low hanging fruit, put in some standard operating procedures on how we tackle sales and marketing, then also back end, how do we handle a lot of the back office stuff? Nice. I love it. So to me, you're preaching to the choir, but I'm going to go on the assumption that people in business don't understand it, or they get too emotionally involved in their own business to see how things that are like, this is just business. This is how it works. Apply to your business and it will scale. But talk to me, let's, we'll start with the tech stack because I think a lot of businesses are like, oh yeah, we have computers. We're tech savvy. And it's like, well, <laughs> Yeah. So what kind of things are you looking for in a business when you look at whether or not their technology is efficient and effective? Yeah. So everything has to move to the cloud first and foremost has to, that's like a given at this point. Um, 
most folks are still using, you know, I've got friends that don't like the saying this, but folks are using stuff that are desktop based and they're licensed to just that one computer or whatever the case may be. Um, I, I, I get rid of that immediately within the first 60 to 100 days. We do not deal with it um, because truth be told, I think one of the ways and, and this is not a secret. A lot of people are doing this now. One of the ways that you compete is you offshore a lot of what we do. I have a good group of people that work out of the Philippines for me. Um, I'm very grateful for them every single day. They can access everything that we do in real time. We track everything. Um, it's able to be able to be, you know, worked on it simultaneously. That has to happen. A lot of these businesses, it was all thinking about how do we build out the team locally? Unfortunately, blue collar businesses in America, although they make the world go round, margins are compressing for a lot of different reasons. And so you've got to be creative in order to compete that way. That's just the reality. It's the micro in me, but I think it's one um, for every five retiring is coming back into the trades. And so we've got a lot of issues on the staffing side. You got a lot of issues on just the ability to scale these businesses at large when you know it's a it's a demand situation. You know, not to tell my play oh my people to ask for raises, but they're they're in the leveraged position, right? They've got they've got basically a skill set that is going out of style, and subsequently they're able to compete um, for higher wages, and that's just the reality. And we try to figure that out by compressing margins in other ways. Um, so. Stack stack has to be uh, has to be um, cloud based, and then we use low code no code software to integrate a bunch of different tools um, on the sales side as well as the back end side. Whether it be you know working with our CRM email campaigns, driving all of that using ChatGPT to register what the feedback is, putting them into other uh, email stacks and sequences, and then once they go through that process, should we close through the different stages within our CRM? It auto generates quotes and auto generates um, inventory records and sort of our um, uh, ERP system that then creates POs and other things related into QuickBooks. So it kind of all ties in together through automation and different stages, which things are moving through our ERP system. You said uh, more words to my, their music to my ears is no code, low code. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so we use, um, you know, the traditional way was you go hire somebody, they build something proprietary for you, kind of stitching things together through a lot of different um, coded circumstances. We use Zapier now as really our, our connective tool, um, other things, but mainly Zapier and, and tied in APIs and all that kind of stuff within the softwares. Um, but, you know, candidly, it's, it's something that I can understand because most of it's an if-then statement with, um, you know, a lot of code sitting behind it to pull it off. But the way it comes to the user, it's if-then, and I can communicate it really well to our, uh, our team members. One thing that's also really key that I think was a distinguishing fact that we had to make at some point is deciding that we were never going to use an enterprise software. No offense to Salesforce and other tools out there. It just was too complicated for the team. For what we needed to do to this certain scale that we were trying to create these businesses, we really needed something that was very user-friendly. So we do the same approach. Um, we use try to use as little amount of custom code as possible, but we we do a lot of low-code notes to the software that, so the team can really understand what's going on. Nice. I love it. And because, you know, children never listen to their parents, I'm going to get it out of your mouth. How expensive is dirty data in a business? Dirty data. I haven't used that. I haven't heard that term in a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah, let me give you a real world it. example about what we do. So we we have a yeah. hundred day plan. Um, I'm getting more and more comfortable just giving things away. So that's probably floating out there somewhere. Um, our hundred day plan is very explicit about the fact that we go after 
previous data that even though it may have been managed very poorly, we go after it because it allows us to go after people that are further down the funnel, right? So we want to go down and capture people and stabilize revenue is a really big part of what we do. We don't buy turnaround businesses, um, but there is a transition period. In some cases, you know, the business has an exposure level that we don't like from a customer concentration perspective. So we have to balance that out. And one of the ways to really keyly do that is to be able to go get the data and say, you know, the last five years, these are all the quotes that we've done. We scan them and then they get indexed into a software that allows us to then plug that into our CRM very efficiently to be able to go market to them immediately. Hey, you quoted us on this date. All that stuff's automated. This certain date, we want to follow up on you. Have you made a decision? Okay, you didn't make a decision. Why did you pause? All that kind of stuff is the process we start going by the hundreds. So love it. Well, and then and it just kind of makes me laugh because we had a client once who had a, had been around in business since 1964. They had 180,000 past awesome. clients that they had never retargeted. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things we talk about a lot, and and I'm no way a sales guy, but I know one basic thing that I think is really really key, and 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 that's just the overarching preaching of follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up. We have a rule that we implement. It takes some time for everybody to get on board. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a rule that everything has to be followed up within 48 hours, even if it's the weekend. So that tells people if they're going to go fire something off on a Friday, they better be prepared to reply back to it on that Sunday to prepare. A lot of people say, okay, then what is my priority to close out the week? It's not to just send off a random email because a lot of people don't reply to their emails on Fridays. That's just what my case has been. So we start instituting that process where people get a little smarter about their communication. They get into the process of managing that communication a little bit better. And, and that way we manage our relationships with our customers even better. Nice, I love it. And and just kind of last point that I want to make on the whole tech side of things sure. is when people have in internal um, departments, because mm -hmm. I've seen accounting has their software, sales has their software, marketing has their software, and databases, and ne'er shall any of them integrate. So back to your Zapier yep. point of view is how, what was kind of the quickest and or the most complex you've had to deal with in order to uh, integrate a a company within itself? Um, great question. I, you know, thinking back, it's software, everybody can have different softwares and there's ways to tie it in. The challenge is getting people to like actually use them all. So I hate to shift the conversation <laughs> to that a little bit, but, yeah. you know, I could speak to moments where, you know, accounting team needed to be able to communicate cloudly to, you know, the inventory side who then needed to communicate to the sales side so that we had enough POs that are going out to be able to make sure we have inventory when they actually purchase and there's lead times that go into those calculations and all that kind of stuff. That's the stuff we do. But just getting people to use it to its entirety is really, really important. And that was the moment where I realized like enterprise software has all the bells and whistles and possibilities but it's almost too much that people do less on it. And that's just yeah. been my experience, totally anecdotal. Maybe somebody else has a different experience. But what I found is the more complicated the software is, the less people use it. Um, and that's not novel. That's just, I think, something that I have found. And so we try to really dumb it down and make a lot of automations happen. I try to think of automations in the monthly sense by the thousands. We want to increase like a thousand a month automation wise. It's it's a benchmark for me to be able to know that we're pushing sales. It's also a benchmark for me that I'm eliminating redundancy within the business. 
And so I always say, think let's let's push that further. Let's push that further. How can we push that further? What's more connections that can we do? And how can we honestly just like blow up our Zapier account and make it more expensive over time? But that's okay. Um, but, love you. Yeah, that, that's our that's our primary objective is to eliminate um, redundancy within the business as you should when we grow these businesses. I love it. So when your businesses that are kind of up for sale, are you looking for them? Are they looking for you? Are you looking for investors? Are you looking for people to take over the companies? Kind of how does that whole dynamics work? Yeah, great question. So there's a triad of my world. Um, take operating off to the side for a second, just pure triad of kind of acquisition side. Um, we we raise capital on a deal by deal basis. So we're always working relationships with that. We've got a small group of about 20 to 30 that I could call right now. We could easily close. Um, that's been curated over time, communicating, giving updates, all that kind of stuff. Um, next is actual deals, um, working with independent brokers or independent uh, small investment banks um, is about 40% of our effort. And then 60% of it is working directly with the business owner over time. Um, a lot of the time that sales cycle is about two years. So recently we've been talking yesterday with one of the business owners, we've been talking to each other since the summer of 2020. So um, we're finally ready, I think. Uh, and so it just takes time, right? And so um, curating that conversation, staying on top of that, we do two week, two times a week standups for 45 minutes just deal flow, um, status check-ins, what needs to be worked on, anything that needs to be going on there. Um, that's with my analyst team. And then on uh, on the other side, there's this new effort because our business model previously was Malcolm would go in as CEO president for the first six months, and then he would transition out. That model does not work. Um, please don't try that. Anybody that's going to try to do that, it does not work. Um, and so we are now in the uh, basically efforts to grow the bench of those people that we have seen as great operators. They love blue collar businesses. They want to be in Texas for a long time. We can align incentives along with them. Um, and they want to run these businesses that we acquire. So we're building out that bench. And that's kind of my third triad and a lot of effort um, for folks that we can develop uh, or have previous experience operating going into these businesses that we acquire um, with our tools and our processes and that, you know, all the resources we can provide them. And you say within our business. So understanding the complexities that is American entities, but are they, are you acquiring all of them into your umbrella of businesses or how does that work? Yeah, so we're a, we're a holding company. We own interest in one major with subsidiaries um, just like that. So it's small LLCs underneath a corp um, kind of structure. Um, and we raise capital on a deal by deal basis structure right now. That might change in the future. We're exploring kind of what that looks like long term. Eventually, there'll be an administrative challenge if we have lots and lots of different investor groups. Um, so we're we're structuring that as of right now this way. Uh, we might roll that and change that in the future. But um, candidly, each one operates independently as as it sits now. Uh, we're going to build them out as platforms. So if you think about like the sorting machine one. We're looked at, you know, do we go vertically? Do we go horizontally? Horizontally being, you know, diversification of product versus uh, vertically going and buying a, you know, CNC or fabric steel fabrication company or something like that, I don't think is the plan. And so we're expanding horizontally right now and looking at other businesses. Either we buy their, you know, existing business and operation and we just let them stay there, or we look to buy their um, designs or their, you know, customer books or all that kind of stuff. We're exploring all of that. Um, and we've got kind of two dedicated people spending a lot of effort in that space. And so um, all that to be said, um, we want to build out a series of platforms and have, you know, operators involved in those deals um, that can run them again, along with us for the next 10, 20 years. 
Nice. So when it comes to the investor side of things, are you looking for individual investors, group investments, portfolios? Yeah. What are you looking for? Great question. So we um, we do deal by deal basis. And so as a result, uh, our minimum check size is $100,000. Um, you know, we're looking at deals that are kind of around or below the 5 million kind of sub um, enterprise value side, doing three to $12 million in revenue. And so as a result, there's a chance for us to leverage there with the cooperation of the owner, depending on the structure. Um, so we we do kind of a deal by deal basis, look at what the business needs, how much leverage we're willing to take, um, setting it up for success, really. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. I, I don't want to lever these businesses up 80% or anything like that. And then all of a sudden we get into a cash flow issue later down the run. We want to be really wise because, I, again, I want to own these businesses for a long time. Um, so in, in certain cases, um, those individuals come in with more than $100,000, depending on the circumstance. Um, but that said, uh, we do look for folks that can be a bit of a value add. I like being able to send an email out to an investor group and say, hey, we have this insurance issue. We've got exposure you know, globally. And so these insurance brokers are giving us a hard time. Got any solutions? Got anybody you can talk to? I like people that have been in business um, and, and are not just capital allocators, but really know how to like roll up their sleeves, figure it out, problem solve through it. Either previously or they're still currently doing it is a big asset or a big value to us. Nice. So either you, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're open to somebody that wants to be a silent partner or somebody that wants to sit on the bylines and eavesdrop on what you're doing and potentially pop in and somebody that's going, Hey, I think there's real potential in this business and let's rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly. We, we have never had anybody be like a day-to-day -day active participant <laughs> um, that changes the dynamics um, of kind of, you know, What's our vision and thesis? Um, but we, we do obviously present that, right? Like, here's what we believe we can do. Here's why we think we can implement our playbook, all those types of things. Um, uh, and so as a result, you know, people are buying into that, but they're often busy with their own ventures or other things, or they've exited out of business and they don't want to roll and seize up. But I think, you know, what's really key to your point is um, they are sometimes silent. Um, what we do engage with them on a regular basis. They get quarterly updates. After the first year, after we stabilize, we do quarterly dividends. Um, I want them to feel a part of what we're doing. Um, but they may or may not know how, you know, that one day went when that one employee did that one thing, you know, whatever the case may be. And so, um, yeah, definitely want people to be engaged. Um, but we, we haven't had anybody, you know, uh, contributed capital and then ended up rolling up their sleeves with us. Um, maybe that's maybe that's a value add in the future that might come down the pipe, but we haven't had that yet. Very cool. So what would you say is your favorite part of your business? Great question. Uh, <laughs> favorite part? I, I get, uh, I don't feel like I'm working. I mean, I feel like I'm just doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, I think I get to explain to my kids some real world situations, which is kind of fun um, and circumstantial things that happen with an employee, you know, cussing me out versus, you know, this is what it looks like to run a profit and loss statement, you know, what have you. I think that that's really fun. But then final, finally, I think that I get to sit in a room as the, you know, quasi or surrogate, of, uh, you know, son, niece, nephew, daughter type person that the owner really wanted to sell their business to, but they maybe didn't have somebody that was going to be that secession plan. So I love sitting in those conversations. I really do. Sitting with an owner and say, hey, I'm 30, almost 33. I, I'd love to be able to run your brick manufacturing company. I'd love to run your porta potty company. I'd love to do all these types of things for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And I am sincere about it. And so I think that's, you know, the core of it. Everything kind of outflows from that, where I get to be the solution to this business owner that is 
looking at kind of their next chapter of life and say, you know, I want to be able to hand something off that I put my blood, sweat and tears into um, to somebody that's going to also put their blood, sweat and tears into it as well. I love it. So give us an example of a Cinderella story of one of the companies that you've worked with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that is really key and and I it's a challenge is with the businesses that we look at, we're often wanting to have some sense of assurance that we're going to close the transaction. It's a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort to get to that point. Um, and it's everybody involved. It's the seller of the business. It's the attorneys that they hire. It's the you know advisors, everybody that's kind of in play. It's a, it's a lot. And so we do spend a lot of time with folks that I, I would say are in the 3D category. They're thinking about death, they're thinking about divorce, or they're thinking about their disinterest in the business. <laughs> and so it's always for us a joy when we can come in and it's like, you know, the the primary guy who was running the business died and his wife took over the business and she can't run it any longer. Or most recently, a, a daughter took over the business and, and she wasn't fit to really run it. And I could step in and say, you know, hey, we will take care of this. Your dad built an amazing business. It's been in generational, you know, family aspects. And you're looking to other options. And I'm, I'm glad I can be that solution for you guys. Um, so, yeah, we take it over and we do it in such a way I think that's truly honoring that what it takes to get a business from zero to seven figures is a totally different skill set than taking it from seven figures to eight figures. And that's our ambition. And so as a result, you know, it, it takes a different concentrational aspect of energy um, that maybe the previous owner didn't have or wasn't willing to give. And so all that to be said, I, I, I can speak to the fact that we've stepped in when, you know, a daughter has taken over the business and the dad's died and um, we can really be that solution to, yeah, I wasn't ready to run this or I didn't really have an interest in the business kind of thing. So um, that's, that's really our hope is we try to solve those three D's for people that are kind of in those crossroads of life. Nice. And are you looking for investors? Are you looking for people that have businesses that are in those three Ds and uh, want to approach you? Whom are you yeah. looking for? Yeah, we're we're actively doing that. Um, looking in Texas for businesses right now. We, you know, we like to close one business a, a year is really kind of our goal. Sometimes we get up to two. Um, but I, I want to be in a position where I can really feel comfortable that we're taking care of these businesses and not rushing this process. So, um, you know, active conversations along the way, hopefully our stars align and it all kind of works out. But yeah, we're looking for Texas-based businesses that have been in existence longer than 10 years that are blue collar in nature, um, that have doing three to $12 million in revenue, um, ideally around 15% net profit on that. Um, and our goal is to, again, be that baton, you know, you can hand it off to us and that we can ultimately run this business in the future uh, for the long term. Love it. And as far as investors go, 100,000, and have yep. a conversation with you. Yes. Yeah. It's not just a conversation. I like to build a relationship. We want to make sure that our theses are aligned. Um, we don't have an exit strategy, full, full disclosure. Um, we like to be with people that want to play the long game that understand that we're here for the long duration of this. Um, and so that's one of the big things is, is that we don't expect these businesses because there's limitations to them in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. We don't expect them to pop off after a couple of years and all becomes a unicorn of some sort. Uh, we expect them to be long, long-standing businesses in Texas um, with great employment and great reputations. And so um, as a result, those investors need to be aligned in that because there's, you know, there's aspects of it that all kind of have to, to be alignment together. All right. And off the top of my head, I see somebody that's looking for blue chip opportunities is you're right up their alley. Yeah. 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 We, we try to do it right. I think so. Um, we really try to do it right. I love it. So I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How do they connect with you? How do they start their journey? 
yeah, you can get a hold of us online, sitsera.com, spelled T-S-E-T-S-E-R-R-A. That reminds me, we never even said the name of the company. So, uh, so <laughs> that was run, your job. <laughs> that's my that's my fault. So uh, yeah, so I run Sitsera Growth Partners. Um, again, we're active in Texas buying businesses, but you can get a hold of us um, at Sitsera. It's spelled T-S-E-T-S-E-R-R-A. That comes from my grandfather's farm that was on the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe. He owned 70,000 acres. Um, and employed hundreds of people. Um, and so it's really an homage to him and the fact that um, we try to do it right and we try to take care of people and we try to you know be the staple in the industry as well as our community. So um, yeah, you can get a hold of us at Sitsera. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn, Malcolm Peace, and, and you can get a hold of me on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Um, but love to be able to chat with anybody that just loves Texas businesses or just loves being able to chat about small business. Nice. I love it. And we will, of course, have all of Malcolm's links in the show notes. So go ahead and scroll down, click on the links and open up a new browser because we're not done yet. So I get to ask you, Malcolm, at what point in life did you know that you were especially kind of crazy enough to think that you could become an entrepreneur? All right. I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> uh, there's, been many, there's been many moments, but there was one idea that I got obsessed with and you'll never, and everybody's going to be like cringing when I say this, but it's what came to my mind is every guy knows when you go into the bathroom, the floor is disgusting. And I got obsessed for about six months to a year creating prototypes and processes about how to get your feet, your shoes clean before you walked into another house because those bottom of those shoes are disgusting. Uh, and someone ended up coming up with it and I'm really proud of them for doing that. Um, but I realized I was a little crazy when I got obsessed with bottom of my shoes being dirty all the time when I have no problem rolling around outside, getting dirty, playing collegiate athletics, getting sweaty. But this was bothering me to my core. Um, so, yeah, a little cringy, but that's the truth. When I realized I was a little bit off the rocker is when I kept telling people about this idea that I had over and over and over again. I, I love it. That's hilarious. And I also have to ask you, how young were your kids when you taught them what a P&L statement was? Oldest was five, I think. <laughs> awesome. We talked about margin. We spent a lot of time about assets and margin one day. Though so that's on the balance sheet. We talked about just basically asset turnover and how well we could produce cash off of, we were talking about chairs. Who owned the chair at the dinner table? And it turned into this whole conversation. So anyways, um, yeah, that was, I think she was five. Oh my God, that's awesome. I, I want to start a podcast called Mama Sad, talking about the conversations that entrepreneurs have with their kids at the dinner table. Okay. I think it's hilarious because my son was about three when he looked at me and goes, how do you just get money out of a wall like that? <laughs> Not an ATM. That's awesome. That's just comes question. out. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> You've been absolutely awesome. Any last words for our peeps? No, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate you having me. And anybody that loves Texas or wants to be in Texas running businesses, happy to chat. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. Cool. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Peeps, this is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show, share it with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. Are you running a business over seven figures, but still struggling with technology headaches? Pay attention. You do not want to miss this offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Awareness Strategies, who is offering a custom-built digital adoption roadmap for anyone running a business over seven figures who's wanting to grow their business in the next five years. And it's not just a roadmap. They offer full implementation as well. If that scares the out of you, check out awarenessstrategies.com forward slash roadmap for more details today. The link's in the show's notes. Don't regret not doing this. Do it now. That's awarenessstrategies.com slash roadmap.